This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. We've had a few lovely conversations honoring Black history, present, and future this month. To close it out strong, we're collaborating with The Making Podcast at WBEZ, and we decided to look at the legendary, albeit short life, of a Chicago icon, Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. It's a story of unapologetic activism, corruption, and tragedy. And in the end, it inspired and transformed so many of the movements for Black lives and human life that we're still seeing today. Here's the episode. Thank you for listening. And let us know what you think. We said even before this happened, and we're going to say it after this, not that I'm locked up, not that everybody's locked up, that you can jail revolutionaries, but you can't jail a revolution. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making. I'm Erin Allen. And I'm Brandon Pope. Today on a special edition of Making, we celebrate Black History Month with our friend from the rundown, the talented and intelligent Erin Allen. Why, thank you, Brandon. And on this episode of Making, we're diving into the legacy of a renowned Chicago revolutionary. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. Fred Hampton. Yeah, that's right, Aaron. Fred Hampton was the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. He was a renowned orator and built solidarity between marginalized people of all races, a real unifier. But tragically, his life was cut short. He was only 21 when he was assassinated during a raid on his home. It was a plot orchestrated by the Cook County State's Attorney, the Chicago Police Department, and the FBI. Today, we reflect on the life and legacy of a Chicago liberation hero. How does a boy from the suburbs grow up to become a civil rights icon? How does a young man, just months after his 21st birthday, so severely threaten the national establishment? What were the years that defined Frederick Allen Hampton? But I believe that I was born not to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die in a car wreck. I don't believe I'm going to die from spitting on a piece of ice. I don't believe I'm going to die because I got a bad heart. I believe that I will be able to die as a revolutionary in the International Revolutionary Pumatan Struggle. Why don't you live for the people? Why don't you struggle for the people? Why don't you die? That's today on Making. Fred Hampton, hailed from the suburbs southwest of Chicago, his family moved there from Louisiana during the Great Migration, seeking employment. His mother was a very strong woman. She was in the union. She was a union steward. She actually supported strikes and so forth. A really strong person. 
And his father, too, had a great set of wonderful values, but didn't speak quite as much as, as Fred did. This is Jeffrey Haas. We spoke with him alongside Flint Taylor. Jeff and Flint were lawyers who worked closely with the Black Panther Party in Illinois. And in the 1960s, they were young, radical white attorneys. Flint was still in law school and Jeff was fresh out of it. They learned about Fred's childhood from his mother and sister. A couple of interesting things I learned about Fred. One is he had a speech defect when he was younger. And of course, he turned into an amazing orator. But He practiced speaking. Later on, he actually memorized the speeches of Dr. King and Malcolm X and also supposedly had a big head for a kid so kids would tease him. So he he became very defensive and very good at, at the nines or defending himself verbally. Fred's family was neighbors with Mamie Till and her son, Emmett. Fred's mother, Iberia, babysat Emmett Till. You know, when when Iberia told me that she babysat uh, for him, and and they called him Bo. And then when he was killed and his body was uh, at the funeral home in Chicago, she didn't go because it was too much for her. When Fred was 10, the family moved to Maywood, a working-class suburb in Chicago. Today, Maywood is 60% black, but back then, it was only a quarter He was a remarkable leader at such a young age. And all of the different things that back in the uh, mid to late 60s were happening across the country were happening also in Maywood. This is Flint Taylor, Jeff's partner in crime. The two of them began to describe a young Fred Hampton getting activated early. When he was 10, he would serve breakfast to hungry neighborhood kids long before the Black Panthers' famous free breakfast programs. On Saturday mornings, there were kids out there who didn't have enough to eat. Fred would go and collect kids, bring them home, and make breakfast for them uh, in the mornings. And this was just something very special about Fred. By high school, he was popular, well-liked, and extremely well-read. He was on the football, basketball, and wrestling teams. He was reading Black political authors like Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Dubois. Notably, he tape-recorded and memorized the speeches of Dr. King and Malcolm X so he could get his own cadence right. But he also was tremendously principled, and he stood out. When, When Black girls were not allowed to be homecoming queens, he led a walkout. And he let another walk out when there weren't enough black teachers and black administrators, all demanding that because Maywood was becoming more black, that there be more black representation on the faculty. Even after he graduated, the principal would call him back to, to talk to both groups of people, the white kids and the black kids, and work out a peace. So here you had a very strong, militant, powerful young man who could make peace or he could be very militant and lead walkouts. Now, Fred Hampton's story cannot be detached from the world events of the time. In Vietnam, 1966 began with a truce over the new year. And in 1966, Fred Hampton was a senior in high school. he just turned 18, and he refused to register for the draft. He was reading the works of Marxist revolutionaries like Mao Tse Tung, Che Guevara, and Ho Chi Minh. As the year began, a quarter million Americans faced the communists in South Vietnam. Swift movement and superior firepower blunted a series of communist offensives. He didn't just want peace in Vietnam. He wanted victory for the Vietnamese. 
That was contrary even to the beliefs held by the NAACP and Dr. Martin Luther King. And over in Chicago... I must say in a different context, it was a time that I was visiting uh, the city and I think he was gracious enough to give me the keys to the city. So I still have the keys to Chicago and I can open a lot of doors around here. MLK came to town. Chicago can change. And we are going to change it non-violently. We are going singing in our hearts. Ain't going to let nobody turn me around. He led nonviolent marches across the city, several of which Fred attended. At these marches, Fred saw white hecklers spit in people's faces and throw rocks. Fred told Dr. King he couldn't march for nonviolence in the face of violent mobs. He leaned towards the message of self-defense. Even though he continued to revere Dr. King, his ideologies of how to achieve progress were solidifying. In one particular incident, a teenage Fred Hampton put his words into action. He made such a wave, it caught the attention of the FBI. There was a pool there that black people were not allowed to swim in. This is Flint again. And Fred was involved in fighting to integrate that pool. Maywood did not have a municipal swimming pool. White kids could go to their private club pool, but black kids were not allowed in. Fred didn't even know how to swim, but he helped bus black kids miles away to the public pool in a nearby town so they could swim. And then in 1967, Fred invited people to gather outside the Maywood Village Hall, where he would speak at the board meeting about the pool. While Fred was inside the hall, police panicked at the crowd and tear-gassed him, resulting in protesters vandalizing the streets. Jeff and Flint's office got involved, and the courts called him up. We're ready to go to trial on your client, Fred Hampton, for leading a march in Maywood for a swimming pool. And he was charged, even though he just addressed the march, with mob action. He was prosecuted for it, and they tried to make him an example. But what they did, rather than make him an example in the negative sense, they made him and facilitated what a strong human being he was and, and how he would resist. And it's, it's very fitting now that the pool in Maywood is, is named after Fred Hampton. That village board meeting would change the course of Fred's life in more ways than one. He was targeted by Maywood police after. He was arrested for traffic violations so frequently he stopped driving altogether. But maybe most notably, that mob action charge put him on the FBI's key agitator index. That index was a list of activists that FBI director J. Edgar Hoover ordered to monitor closely. More positively, his outspokenness earned the attention of the West Suburban NAACP. They asked Fred to start a youth chapter. It grew to 200 members in less than a year. I met Fred Hampton in April of... 1968. And in spring of 1968, the right paths converged. I was a part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. 
This is former Congressman Bobby Rush. He battled cancer of the salivary glands back in 2008, and his speech has been labored since. So you may have to lean in to catch all of his words. But long before he held office, he was an activist with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC, led by a man named Stokely Carmichael. Fred had invited Stokely Carmichael to come to Maywood, and we hit it off. As NAACP head, Fred made a speech introducing Stokely Carmichael to a crowd in Maywood, and Bobby Rush thought he was impressive. That same year, Bobby Rush went to Oakland to meet with the Black Panther Central Committee. He returned with a mandate, start a chapter in Chicago, and he immediately knew who to call first. Later on, I called Fred, and uh, when we decided that we were going to become members of the Black Panther Party, and that's a history within itself. He was the first person that we called to ask him would he join us. Fred said yes. The Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party was born. They assigned roles. Bobby Rush would be the deputy minister of defense, and Fred, with his gift of gab, would be the spokesperson. And so he became Chairman Fred Hampton. Deputy Minister of Defense for the State of Illinois, bad motherfucker, a brother of mine, the brother I've been working with a long time ago, continue to work with. I'm gonna eat with him, I'm gonna sleep with him, I'm gonna die with him, I'm gonna live with him, I'm gonna lead with him. Bobby Rush. The power of communication. He was a person who, who was a student of communication of oratory. When I first met him, I wasn't too clear on whether or not I would involve myself. I still was kind of a coward. This is Billy Che Brooks. He would eventually become the deputy minister of education of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And he was a close friend of Fred's. And what was your first impression of meeting Chairman Fred Hampton? This brother sure know how to talk. He was well read. He required that me in the new role that I was in as deputy minister of education, that I read and develop an ideological, philosophical understanding as it relates to the politics. One of the things that the Black Panther Party was very clear on was that uh, racism was a byproduct of, of a capitalist uh, system. That was his mantra. His intellectual ability, his capacity, his compassion led to a very close relationship with, with my chairman. So the Black Panther Party got to work. And I think contrary to popular narrative, a lot of their work involved community programs. We had to open up our breakfast programs from Algale Gardens all the way to Cabrini Green. And each and every one of those communities had, had different groups. All power to the people is what we lived on and what we lived for. And, and Fred was a progenitor of that type of process. They gave out breakfast to hungry families. They opened up a free medical center on the west side that served upwards of 75 people a week with volunteer doctors from across the city. And they passed out newspapers. The paper always focused on 
various issues that affected black people directly. Police brutality on imperialism. This is John Opress Preston, and he was one of the younger members of the Black Panther Party, just 14 years old at the time. He worked on newspaper distribution. One thing that we really exposed that was really, really prominent, for example, was sickle cell anemia. Because a lot of people didn't know about sickle cell anemia. We began to expose sickle cell anemia, what the government wasn't doing. People got a clear understanding of what sickle cell anemia was in terms of your hemoglobin, white blood cells compared to red blood cells. And, uh, you know, whether you had the disease or whether you had the traits. So we were very instrumental in doing that. And then we began sickle cell testing behind that. So anything that we exposed, we, we also followed up with some form of action. Fred had a toe in everything. He was looking in on everything to see what was going on, see what needed to be done, see how to make things better, more efficient. This is Michael D. McCarty, another member of the party. He was on the education cadre under Billy Che. But he wasn't somebody who was trying to this, do this, do that. He put people in position and then let them handle what they needed to handle. But he was empowering. That was one of his great strengths. He was empowering to everyone who was in the party. Leaders have certain qualities. Some are great speakers. Some are great organizers. Some are great fundraisers. Friend was all that in the bag of blue corn chips organic. He had all of those qualities. And he brought them to bear depending on who he was talking to, how he was interacting. And among Fred's notable leadership skills was his ability to bring people together. Coalition building. It may just be Fred's claim to fame. We say all power to all people. We say white power to white people. Brown power to brown people. Yellow power to yellow people. Black power to black people. It's power to booze that we left out. He chatted with party member Bob Lee, who had done some organizing on the north side. They realized poor people of all races were suffering at the hands of the police and poverty. We looked at the conditions that existed in the Puerto Rican community, and particularly the Appalachian poor white community that was up in Uptown. That's Billy Che again. The Panthers met with a Puerto Rican gang-turned-human rights organization, the Young Lords and a group of white Confederate flag-wearing Appalachian migrants in Uptown, the Young Patriots. And really talked to them about class. He was very good at that, that we all had the same concerns. We all had the same harassments. We all needed medical care. We all needed decent housing. The best way to achieve that, you know, would be within the infrastructure of a class struggle. And so was created the country's first Rainbow Coalition. You know, fight fire with fire. You fight fire with water. And you don't fight racism with racism. You fight racism with solidarity. It's little simple stuff like that. If it was relevant then, it's even more relevant now. And Fred didn't stop at poor white and Puerto Rican people. During this time, the Black Panther Party used to go door-to-door in Black neighborhoods to find out people's complaints. This put them in trouble with Chicago street gangs like the Black Peace Stone Nation and the Black Disciples. That didn't worry Fred, though. He thought, let's work together. 
when they had meetings with the Black Peace Donation or other gangs and what have you. Michael D. McCarty of the Education Cadre. The gangs would come in with a, like, okay, we bad, we bad, we bad. And Fred's mindset was, yeah, you bad, but the police are still kicking your ass, our ass, and our people's ass. What you going to do about that? What are you going to do about that? That's what we're talking about. We're not here to fight you. We're here to make you understand that the people need to be served instead of being victimized. Fred was that kind of motivator. He could make people see past the trivia and the little minute differences that we had. That was one of his great strengths and powers. After one meeting with the Blackstone Rangers, the Chicago police arrested a carload of Panthers. They got an FBI tip. Panthers thought the Rangers snitched. Turns out it was an informant. After the break, the tumultuous year of 1969. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Erin Allen, host of The Rundown Podcast. So have you shared this show with your friends yet? Go ahead, hit the share button and send it to a homie or two who you know would be into it. And if you appreciate what we're bringing to you here every day on The Rundown, I would really love it if you could write us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Written comments and five-star reviews help more people besides that friend you just sent this to find the show. Okay, that's it. Oh, yeah. And thank you for listening. In 1969, police arrests and run-ins really picked up. And in May of that year... The pigs thought that by incarcerating him, that that would just basically disband the party. But it made us stronger. Fred got arrested. An ice cream truck vendor alleged... Fred stole $71 worth of ice cream and then gave it to the kids of Maywood. Talking about giving me 20 years for ice cream truck robbery. That's right. $71 worth of ice cream, 710 ice cream bars. I might be big, but I can't eat 710 ice cream bars. The police said the victim of the robbery identified Fred's picture. And Fred used to say, well, they tried to lie and say I was a thief, but at least they made me a Robin Hood thief. <laughs> it, 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 was, it, just, it was just always preposterous. This is Lynn French, another member of the party. She played many roles, including founding the daycare. The People's Law Office, that's Jeffrey's firm, had negotiated a plea bargain for him. And they thought that Fred was going to show up in court that day and just leave. It wasn't a big to-do because nobody was expecting anything to happen. And the judge challenged him about being a revolutionary. And he said, yes, I am a revolutionary. And they locked him up. He lost the case and was sent to Menard Correctional Center, a maximum security prison, for five years. He appealed his case and, after serving about four months, was released on an appeal bond. Decades later, another man told Jeff he committed the crime. 
Panther Party member John Preston remembers his release being a moment of joy. The next evening, there was a, a rally at the um, Church of the Epiphany. We, we called it then the People's Church, where he gave his speech. And he talked about being so internationally, proletarianly intoxicated that he could not be uh, astronomically intimidated. Uh, you know, going down into the valley and being high on the people. You know what I despise as being? I despise as being a people high. I despise as being high on the people. You high? I'm high. You understand what I'm saying? I'm high off the people. Give me a beat now. Come on now. That high only lasted a few months. Hampton's appeal was overturned. He had to return to prison on December 13, 1969. And 69 was a banner year not only for us, but for this country. That's Lynn French again. She said police run-ins really picked up in 1969. Everybody was always being arrested. You know, the police would stop us. They'd knock out your rear lights on your car. And then when you came and got in it, they'd stop you for not having the tail light. People were being busted left and right from minor things, major things. The chairman was going to prison. Police were catching panthers all over the place. Paranoia was growing. I brought him to the law school to speak. This is Flint Taylor again talking about Fred. So I picked him up on the west side and I drove him back. And he was talking, you know, the pigs are following us. Mm -hmm. I was talking very much about how he felt he was being not only surveilled, but uh, that he was, in fact, a target. And being rather naive at that time, I, yeah, I thought perhaps maybe he was overdoing it, maybe this isn't quite accurate. I naively thought he wasn't quite dealing with reality when, in fact, it was I that wasn't dealing with the reality of what a target he had on his back for all that he was doing for the people. Years later, through a lawsuit and a whistleblower, America would come to find out that paranoia was well warranted. In the course of the lawsuit, we uncovered some documents of the FBI. Attorney Jeff Haas again. Who specifically said J. Edgar Hoover wrote to the head of every FBI office that had a Panther chapter in it that one of the goals of the FBI was to disrupt, destroy, and neutralize the Black Panthers. Again, J. Edgar Hoover was the FBI director in the late 60s. And so that's a pretty broad uh, directive, which was deliberately ambiguous. And of course, part of that was the famous prevent the rise of a messiah who could unify and electrify the black masses. So Fred was in that category. So because of this ability to organize, Fred became a target not only of the Chicago police, but of the FBI. Their directives were clear. The memos they sent out were after Malcolm was assassinated and after Dr. King was assassinated. And so then it was pivoting towards the Black Panthers. And of course, as Jeff mentioned, when they investigated the FBI and the CIA, they found that the FBI had, in fact, a program, COINTELPRO, 
a design to destroy the Black Panther Party. Co-Intel Pro, a widespread anti-communist FBI campaign in the late 1960s run by Director Hoover. It went so far in surveilling and plotting, it prompted congressional hearings. Among the targets, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Muhammad Ali, and of course, Chairman Fred Hampton. Panthers were dying all over. Panthers were being locked up all over. Just simply because we had a connection to the people. And that is something that bugged the hell out of the establishment. It made us weary. Michael D. McCarty. You you didn't know what was going on. It it was it was so far reaching. It was so far reaching. Dirty tricks to the nth degree. Anything to disrupt. And in Chicago, this paranoia and violence came to a head on November 13th, 1969. A shootout ensued between 19-year-old Panther Spurgeon Jake Winters and the Chicago police, resulting in the death of Winters and two police officers. Bobby Rush remembers it like this. And the Chicago Police Department were embarrassed. They wanted vengeance. They wanted a vendetta. So that was the necessary impetus for the FBI to collaborate and actually uh, plan out what happened assassination. About three weeks later, on December 3rd, 1969, the Black Panther Party held a rally at the People's Church on Chicago's west side. Michael D. McCarty was there. After the rally, a bunch of us came over to Fred's apartment. I was one of them. And we would debate, we would discuss, we would argue, and then we would eat. <laughs> um, and I fell asleep on one of the couches, woke up about 2 a.m. and went home. At about 6 o'clock in the morning, our partner, Skip Andrew, knocks on my back door. He lived down the street from me. Attorney Jeff Haas. And I looked at him and he said, the chairman's been murdered. At 4.30 in the morning on December 4th, 1969, 14 plainclothes Chicago police officers raided Fred Hampton's apartment at the command of Cook County State's Attorney Edward Hanrahan. Fred was asleep next to his fiancée, who was nearly nine months pregnant. Police unloaded 90 bullets into the house. Only one bullet was shot in the other direction from 22-year-old Panther Mark Clark, who shot into the ceiling. Both Mark Clark and Fred Hampton died. And I, I, I was stunned because Fred made us all feel like we could live forever, you know? And here he's being told he was, he was dead. It just didn't fit. Jeff went to go talk to the survivors, including Fred Hampton's fiance, Deborah Johnson, now Akua Najiri. And I waited in the waiting room and then walks in Fred's fiance, who's eight and a half months pregnant. Mm. She's in her nightgown and she's crying. And she said, well, the bids vamped on the crib or they, they came in this morning shooting. They kept shooting. I tried to wake Fred up. I was in bed with him, and he sort of raised his head up and then went back down in spite of 
all this noise. And then at one point, they dragged me out of the room in my nightgown and said, oh, we got a broad in here. And they held her out and pushed her up against a wall. And she said, I heard them go into the room. And one of the policemen said, is he dead yet? And I heard two shots. Then the other policeman said, well, he's good and dead now. When when Mama Akua is trying to wake him up and he he isn't able to really wake up, why is that? Yeah, they what what happened was uh, we got an independent pathologist and toxicologist to 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 look at his blood uh, after uh, the murder, and she found that there was a large amount of secondol in his system, and of course Fred never used drugs and that. Uh, Everybody was consistent about that. He, he didn't take these drugs voluntarily, but it would suggest because Fred didn't wake up. Uh, and if it was one thing that would have been for sure, that if he were awake, he would have defended himself. And he did not defend himself as much as they told the lie that he did. So then uh, we constructed how could that second all have gotten into his system? That brings us to William O'Neill. He was Hampton's head of security, but he was an FBI informant. The suspicion is that he drugged Hampton the night before the raid. That place was not secure. This is Billy Che Brooks again. And earlier that year, he had warned Fred against buying a house in the city. He told him to go out to the suburbs where he would be safe from police. You know, and... uh... Probably the saddest thing that, that uh, I don't even like talking about this, but it just, you know, you know, it, it wasn't supposed to happen like that, you know, uh, and that's the sadness of it. That spot wasn't secure. Where were you and how did you find out that the chairman was assassinated? That was uh, the Cook County Jail. That that morning, the warden at that time, Winston Moore and his chief, they came up to my cell laughing, you know, they tell me that uh, my chairman was, was, was dead, you know, and they, they thought it was so fucking funny, you know. I didn't want to believe them, but later on that day, one of our attorneys uh, confirmed it, and... Uh, it was one of the worst moments of, of my life because I wasn't there. And I keep telling myself if I was there, it wouldn't happen like that. I know that for a fact, you know, uh, you know. J. Engel Hewitt, that bastard. Bobby Rush again. So he knew the power and the potential of Fred Hampton. The People's Law Office were among the first at the scene of the crime. They and the Panthers got to work. Here's Flint Taylor. Skip Andrew, who, who was a, a major lawyer in our office at that time, had gotten there and had had the presence of mind to start to organize dealing with 
the evidence there because the police had fled without closing down the apartment. Mm. So just after the shock of standing in the blood of Fred Hampton and understanding that just a month or two before, um, I had seen him, talked to him, and thought perhaps he was a little paranoid. It took the authorities two weeks to secure the apartment. The Panthers took advantage of the delay. Then we became a team to take evidence, to film the walls, and the Panthers had the presence of mind to run tours. Every morning, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people lined up, and the Panthers showed them where all these bullet holes from the machine guns and the shotguns. Mm. Each morning, they brought the bloody mattress that Fred was murdered on, and they put it back where it was when he was murdered, and they go through and they say, and here's where the chairman was murdered. Literally thousands of people had seen what had happened, and the apartment spoke for itself. It spoke for itself. While the black community, I think, was in many ways divided about the Panthers, they didn't accept that a young leader could be murdered in his bed at 4.30 in the morning. While this was happening, Hanrahan left the apartment, gathered Panther weapons, and was holding a press conference saying that the police were attacked by the Panthers, that they went there unknowingly, and suddenly this group had started attacking them, and they told this harrowing story of how they barely survived. The immediate violent criminal reaction of the occupants in shooting at announced police officers emphasizes the extreme viciousness of the Black Panther Party. This moment started a 13-year legal battle between the People's Law Office and the state. They filed several civil rights lawsuits. They found floor plans that William O'Neill made for the police so they knew exactly where Fred would be sleeping. They found the $300 bonus William O'Neill received for a job well done. Most notable of all, though, they uncovered that the raid was indeed a part of the FBI's COINTELPRO campaign in their mandate to quote-unquote neutralize Black Panther Party leadership. In 1970, Mark and Fred's loved ones, alongside survivors of the raid, filed a $47.7 million lawsuit. It was against Hanrahan and 28 other city, county, and federal officials. Uh, and, and the more we dug, I think it, it proved how, how nefarious this plot was. Uh, we went to trial. The, the, the judge was as hostile as he could be throughout after we presented this and much, much more evidence, while the jury was deliberating, after an 18-month trial, the judge dismissed the case, held me and Flynn in contempt, and so forth. And I'll let Flynn tell you what happened on the appeal. <laughs> we won. <laughs> We took them out of the field, and, and, and we won in the, uh, the Seventh Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals, two-to-one decision. They took it to the Supreme Court. Uh, we won five-to-three, 
uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, one of the judges uh, recused himself. Jeff and I and, and all of us are really the most proud of, I think, is changing that narrative from a shootout, which was what Hanrahan was trumpeting, to a shoot-in, which is the 90 versus one bullets, yeah. to a murder which is what Deborah said about uh, going into the, uh, he's good and dead now, to a political assassination. Mm. What was the fallout for the party after Fred's death? They left. They found out that the police department was shooting Real bullets. And so some of the people, they ran for the hills. A lot of people left. Uh, you know, we were able to uh, continue with our breakfast programs across the city. We continued to function, but the veracity was not there because he was like that glue, you know, crazy glue. Fred. Fred was one of those people who, let's say you got two or three people who have differences with each other. In Fred's presence, those differences went away. And when Fred was gone, that mitigation in some of these situations wasn't there. Jeff, when you think about what we have to learn from this story, what comes to mind? Dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't struggle, damn it, you don't deserve to win. Peace to you if you're willing to fight for it. I think that in, in many situations in my life and all of our lives, we need that kind of inspiration. In my life, when I've encountered situations that are difficult, I often think, what would Fred say? What would, what would Fred do? What is the legacy of Fred Hampton? His legacy is one of love. And when I say love, when you serve the people, you, you got to love the people. The, the legacy is more important than your life. We threw the question to Fred Hampton's son, Fred Hampton Jr., he was not even born when his dad was assassinated. A deep love, a deep love for the people. He embodied that, and that, that was his calling. It was, you know what I'm saying? It was not just, not just uh, talking about it, but I, you know, uh, walking the walk. Looking at it more broadly in terms of what Fred meant and continues to mean. Flint Taylor again. I mean, the fact that you all are doing this 55 years later and bringing back to the community Fred Hampton, not only as a martyr, but more importantly, as a leader, as a leader up there on the level of Malk, on the level of Dr. King, is where he belongs. You can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill a revolution. You can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution. You can run a freedom fire out the country, but you can't stop freedom fighting. I'm not going to die slipping on a piece of ice. I'm not going to die of a heart attack. I'm going to die fighting in the people's revolution. Dare to struggle, dare to win.
Making Fred Hampton was produced by Hina Srivastava. I'm your host, Brandon Pope. And I'm your host, Aaron Allen. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. Special thanks to Layla Wills and the Historical Preservation Society of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. And be sure to check out The Assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas and From the Bullet to the Ballot by Jacoby Williams. You can also check out the 1971 documentary The Murder of Fred Hampton on Max. More episodes are on the way, so be sure to press that subscribe button and we'll see you again soon. Boom. Hey, that's a joint episode. Great job, Aaron. Thank you. That was fun, guys. Her voice is just so healing. Aww.